And we welcome you to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. September is Underground Railroad Month, and many of you, I'm sure, have at least some idea of what the Underground Railroad was and its importance uh, during uh, the mid-19th century. But I have a feeling that a lot of us are walking around with some misassumptions about exactly what the Underground Railroad was, exactly how it functioned. And uh, one of the people who uh, knows a lot more about that than most of us do is my morning show guest. His name is Adam Larson, a recent graduate of uh, Carthage College. In fact, a past visitor on the morning show. He was on the program back in, I think, the fall of 2019 uh, with Dr. Thomas Carr, uh, having been on one of Dr. Carr's uh, 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 dinosaur digs. And um, Adam Larson uh, for the last few months has been serving as a seasonal park ranger for the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park in Maryland. And uh, so through the course of his work as a seasonal park ranger there, uh, he has come to an even deeper understanding of who Harriet Tubman was and the role that she played in the so-called Underground Railroad, which one of the brochures in the park uh, tells us was neither a railroad nor literally underground. But but there are a lot of ways in which that term, underground railroad, is actually very telling. And uh, it's it's a very, very interesting and important story. And it touches on, uh, of course, uh, places all over the country, including right here in southeastern Wisconsin, where there were places known to be part of the so-called Underground Railroad. And I'm really excited that uh, Adam Larson can join us uh, since he is visiting his hometown of Kenosha uh, to be on the morning show today and talk about the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman and his work at at this uh, state park in Maryland. Adam Larson, we welcome you back to the morning show. Thank you for having me. Glad you, we can have you here. Uh, before we talk about the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman, let's find out a little bit about you uh, growing up here in Kenosha, what ultimately uh, drew you to Carthage, and what you studied there. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm from Kenosha. I went to K-12 through all here in Kenosha. Uh, I went to Carthage to study paleontology. It was between civil engineering and paleontology, and I asked Nick Wearsome, who's the curator of, at Natural Science Education at the Kenosha Bulk Museums, if, uh, if it was possible to work in paleontology and not, you know, be constantly starving and need, mm-hmm. in need of, you know, seven degrees. Uh, and his answer was that there were jobs, and I decided I would rather pursue passion over money. Uh, so I attended Carthage for uh, paleontology. So you were telling me you have, technically speaking, a BA in biology with an emphasis in paleontology. Yes, yeah, so the paleontology program at Carthage is within the biology program. Right. And um, I guess, in a sense, this this uh, this position you took at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad uh, State Park might not seem on the surface to be paleontology-related. Is it somewhat related, at least in an ancillary way? Uh, in a way. So the park is naturally primarily focused on Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, but there are still connections to the natural world. It's still a state park. It has uh, limited hiking trails, but it has a trail. And so with uh, some of our outreach materials and other interpretive things, a knowledge of the natural world through biology is helpful. 
So, and, and Harriet Tubman herself also had a lot of knowledge about the natural world of cell as well. So Very good. You were telling me that your uh, term there as a park ranger was either uh, interrupted or I guess a better word is probably delayed uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic, which of course had a whole lot of uh, negative impact on all kinds of different entities, including uh, sadly, a, a lot of state parks and national parks, for that matter. Uh, just tell us what what kind of a complication that was for you in terms of beginning your work there. Yeah, um, so the complication in part was how I got the job there in the first place, actually. Uh, in the winter of 2019-2020, I had a couple jobs lined up for that summer. Um, and then things kind of went south, and I realized, you know, I don't think I'm going to be going to Shanghai to teach kids there about paleontology uh, so it's wow. like uh-oh i think i need to try and look for look for other jobs and i had hoped to go into museums and it turns out if you're looking for jobs in museums at a time when most museums are closed not great hiring <laughs> so i realized well i have a biology degree i love going to state parks and national parks Ooh, i could go and look at being a park ranger so i searched for all 50 states, uh, Department of Natural Resources job listings, or uh, that state agency equivalent. And I applied for 71 jobs. And I was hired as a seasonal park ranger at Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park in early July, but was told that the park was not yet open and that once the park would open, then I would start. But until then, it wouldn't start. So that's why I was hired in July and started in November. So the the park had been open but closed down because of COVID? Yes. So the park's grand open. It's a fairly new park, and it opened on March 10th to 2017 on Harriet Tubman Day. Right. There we go. So uh, ahead of even applying for this job and ultimately getting this job, what did you know about Harriet Tubman? I knew that she was on the Underground Railroad and that she helped free people. I think that's probably it. Um, <laughs> I didn't know a whole lot. I knew the, the cliff notes kind of, oh, she did cool stuff, I think, right? That's that's what I seem to have heard. Um, I've kind of wondered now that I know more of like, what did I actually know there? What did I actually, you know, think or just was unaware of? But mm, Interesting. So th- this, these are the two things that I think we, we want to focus on most is, first of all, Harriet Tubman, of course, herself, but also this thing with which she was affiliated, uh, which was known as the Underground Railroad. Let's actually start with the second. Uh, I think it's really helpful for us to understand Harriet Tubman and her significance if we first understand something about this thing called the Underground Railroad and when it sprang up, and in a sense, how it functioned. Um, so what can you tell us about that? So like you said, it was not a literal railroad. Um, that was a semi-common question we would get at the park of, <laughs> where are the tracks? And we are like, no, there, there aren't any real tracks. A literal <laughs> underground railroad would just be a subway, basically, when you think about it. Yeah, right. Um, and subways, of course, didn't exist in the early 19th century. Um, but in the early 19th century, that was kind of when railroads were first coming out, first coming into common usage. They were the new technological innovation. Think um, mm. 
someone talking about the information superhighway of the internet in the 90s. Same kind of thing. And so the Underground Railroad refers to the roots and the people that would help freedom seekers uh, who found themselves enslaved in the American South. Uh, and it's the roots and people that helped them get along to freedom. Um, generally, that freedom would have been either in the northern United States or Canada, but it's important to note that it wasn't all just moving north. If mm. you were enslaved in Louisiana or Florida, you might be heading into uh, deeper into swamps and living with free communities there. If you were in Texas, you might be going to Mexico, and or potentially you may even be going to some Caribbean islands or the Bahamas, depending on where you were. Mm. Yeah, I, I, that was one thing I learned from the, the brochures you sent me, that that slavery was prohibited in Mexico, which I did not remember knowing. And so oh, you're, you're absolutely right. We tend to always think about Canada as the ultimate destination, but that probably would not have made sense for those for whom that would have been an especially long journey. The journey to Mexico and to freedom, that direction would have been much quicker and much more sensible. Certainly. And the we know more about the escapes to Canada, in part because it was a bit more of a common destination because there were many more escapes from the Upper South than in the Deep South. Mm. So the world that Harriet Tubman lived in would not be as the stereotypical, if you think of slavery, you think of there's a giant plantation house, there's a few hundred enslaved workers in a field in front of it picking cotton. That's not what the Upper South would have been like, where Harriet Tubman at least was living. Um, where she was, she was in an area where the slaveholders, we would today be view them as more of small business owners. Mm. Uh, the average number of enslaved people a slaveholder would enslave would have been about eight. Huh. So think of this. It's a single family um, with some land. They might be farming part of it. They might be timbering part of it. Might be boat building. Um, oftentimes what actually happened would be that a slaveholder would not have work to occupy all of the people he enslaved. So he would actually hire out enslaved labor to other people that needed temporary labor or mm. to a canal that was being built, or something like that. So there was a lot of movement, naturally, within this region. Of, well, that person is traveling over to that farm because he's going to be working for that man for a year. Or, oh, they're heading back to go and visit his family on this other farm. Uh, and so it separated a lot of families, um, temporarily, in some cases permanently. But it also provided for a bit more mobility than in the Deep South with the focus on these ginormous plantations. And so that mobility actually helped people uh, escape on the Underground Railroad. Interesting. So I suppose in some ways, just the fact that they were not rooted to the central property the way maybe a lot of slaves were in the, in the Deep South, just the fact that they were from time to time allowed to move around, expected to move around, uh, that maybe gave them opportunities actually to escape that would have been not not as accessible for slaves living in a very different situation. Oh, certainly. And mm. there was also a large free black community, especially in Dorchester County. Uh, that's where Harry Tubman was born, and that's where the park is. And so many of those free African Americans worked as watermen. And so that's a Chesapeake Bay lingo for a person who goes out in Chesapeake Bay and the tributaries and goes and crabs and fishes and oysters. 
And so because while the watermen were still discriminated against and oppressed, um, they had a bit more freedom out on the water than if they had stayed on land. Because if you're out on the water, you're pretty much your own boss. Uh, You don't have to deal with as much uh, adversity from other people, from the environment, certainly, but not from other people. And so these watermen formed sort of an informal communication network uh, because they're going and they're sailing across the bay, uh, sailing up and down the bay. And because it was illegal to teach an enslaved person to read and write, uh, most of the black population could not read and write. So they weren't using newspapers or writing letters most of the times. But these free black sailors, these blackjacks, as they were called, were moving up and down the bay and relaying information. They're going and saying, oh, this so-and-so is getting married. So-and-so is going to be sold south. So-and-so is going to have a kid. That kind of thing. Wow. So there's like a high level of gossip, <laughs> like a gossip tree. Kind of In thing. a manner of speak, or simply just of what's going on. Because if you're living in a place where you you don't have any access to really media, then it has to be everything is sort of through the grapevine in a wow. way. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that could also include information that might be really valuable for somebody who is perhaps wanting to escape. Certainly. You would also hear that, oh, so-and-so escaped. So-and-so's gone now. They're, we're not sure where they are, but they... Right. So... I think one of the misunderstandings that uh, a lot of us have had about the Underground Railroad is that we imagine it to have been a very organized kind of thing. And not that it wasn't organized, but not organized in the way that we typically use that term. I mean, there was no president of the Underground Railroad and there was no sort of governmental oversight in terms of people making decisions and dispatching people and so on. Uh, It wasn't put together in that kind of way at all, and yet there was a way in which it was maybe kind of informally structured. Help us understand kind of how it was put together and how it functioned. Yeah, so it uh, was not, you're right in that it was not some big organization, uh, formal organization, I should say. There was, yeah, there wasn't one person who was like, all right, we're going to go and have a conductor here and a conductor here and a conductor here. Uh, Conductors is Underground Railroad talk for the people that helped freedom seekers along the way. So a conductor would run a station, and a station would be where an enslaved person uh, could go and stay, maybe get some food and supplies, and then the conductor would go and tell the freedom seeker or passenger uh, where the next station would be. And that would be a lot of just one-to-one knowledge of, I know this person, I know that they are an abolitionist, I know they're willing to help, so I'm going to go, and you, sir, have showed up at my door, and you need help, and so I'm going to provide you with some assistance and food, go until you avoid that road because there's slave catches out there, but there's a person in the next town over who can go and help you. Uh, There were some publicly very well-known underground railroad agents. Uh, Thomas Garrett in Wilmington pretty much openly talked about how he was active on the underground railroad, but he was wealthy and a very prominent member of the community. So he did not have to fear the same kinds of reprisals necessarily. Mm. Um, He knew that he was in a position that was somewhat insulated, although he was still certainly at risk. He still did get arrested and put on trial. Um, And that trial, he basically said, I'm going to do this again, you know. Um, But for other people, the risks would be extreme. 
there is an Irish immigrant in Dorchester County uh, named Hugh Hazlitt. And he was an abolitionist. He believed that slavery is wrong. And he was caught while trying to help a group of freedom seekers escape. And he was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to 44 years in prison. Wow. So the risks were serious. Um, the risks were extreme. And so that's why for most Underground Railroad conductors, they would not be openly talking about this. Um, maybe the closest thing to a formal organization would have been the Quakers, actually. Mm. Uh, so as a religious movement, the Quakers in the late, ni- late 18th century, early 19th century, they really became abolitionist. Uh, there were some slaveholding Quakers in the late ni- 18th century, um, but basically the the religious leaders and the community decided that, you know, this is, they saw it was a bad thing. And so they began to expel members that uh, enslaved people, things like that. And so they eventually became groups of abolitionists. And so oftentimes it was Quakers um, as well as uh, free blacks that were going and helping freedom seekers on the Underground Railroad. And you would have different Quaker communities or congregations and so there was, in a sense, a, a structure there within which this work with the Underground Railroad could could proceed. Yes. So, or I'm a, I'm a Quaker couple, and I know a Quaker couple in the town just north of me. So if someone comes here, I'm going to relay them there. Interesting. Uh, when someone would be part of this, I mean, where their home would be a so-called safe house where, where a slave could come, do we know very much about what happened within those four walls in terms of, I mean, within that house, would there be kind of a designated hiding place uh, where where these fugitive slaves would, would stay, in a sense, sequestered and out of sight? Or, or generally speaking, once you were inside the door, uh, was it just living, in a sense, uh, temporarily in a normal house? It would depend on where you were and mm. how safe it was for you to be out and about. So when Harriet Tubman went and freed herself, she stayed with a Quaker couple. We don't actually know the Quaker couple's name. We don't actually know exactly where they are. But we do Mm. know there was a Quaker couple along the way. And when she arrived, the woman who lived there immediately gave her a broom and said, hey, start sweeping. Because if someone came by that didn't know what was going on, they would go, oh, there's a woman just sweeping the front yard. Okay, that they probably maybe hired some help or something. Right, right. Something like that. Um, so it would really depend on where you were. Um, as for what goes on within the walls, uh, William Still was an Underground Railroad conductor in Philadelphia. Um, his family uh, had been enslaved. He was free and living in Philadelphia. And he was literate and kept meticulous records of everyone that passed through his doors. Hmm. And so he would go and ask them questions. And so you'd ask them, you know, hello, what's your name? What, you know, uh, where are you from? Uh, who was your slaveholder? Uh, where are your brothers and sisters and family? Uh, who are their slaveholders? Um, what were they like? Um, where are you headed? All sorts of different questions. And he, after the Civil War, he actually published his book. It's called The Underground Railroad. It's by mm. William Still. It's an enormous volume. It's several hundred pages, very, you know, Bible-level thick. Wow. Um, and it's just his, what he wrote about 
what he asked the people that were passing through. Uh, not Most people were not um, such good record keepers, in part because that records, those records could be incriminating right. if you were caught. Um, but regardless, he kept those records. Um, oftentimes, if you were in the house, um, they would have gone and given you food. Um, if you, say, needed new shoes, they'd give you new shoes. Um, oftentimes, one of the uh, kind of obvious signs that a person might be a fugitive slave that uh, freedom seekers would want to avoid would be tattered or dirty clothing, things that would indicate that you've been taking back roads and maybe had to mm. hide in a bush or wade through a swamp or something like that. So a clean change of clothes could save your life. Wow. Um, so things like that. They also maybe give you some food, and they would also give you directions to the next safe house. Or once you got far enough north, they could arrange for more conventional transportation. So, and I did say the Underground Railroad was not a literal railroad, but if you got to a certain point far enough north where there was enough abolitionist sentiment and also just enough a large enough free black community, uh, there were cases where Harriet Tubman did take a train part of the way. And mm. that was by, she had enough money for a train ticket. So she bought a train ticket okay. and just took a train. As opposed to in the deep south, for instance, something like that would have been a very, very risky thing to do. Yeah, that would have been incredibly bold and also incredibly stupid. Right. Um, now... Of course, taking public transportation, there are risks involved. Harriet Tubman once found herself on a train with one of her former slaveholders while wow. she was on one of her missions. Wow. And she realized, oh, no, I know that man, and he knows me. And she saw there was a newspaper next to her. So she thinks, okay, I can go and grab the newspaper, put it up in front of me. I'm just a person reading a newspaper. The catch being that Harriet Tubman never learned to read and write. Hmm. So she didn't know if she was holding the newspaper right side up or not. Uh, so and, and neither do we, because no one else knows either, because wow. no one else noticed her, and she managed to get past. Wow. So. A lot of close calls. Wow. And you, you said something earlier that I think is really important to uh, emphasize, and namely the fact that this was something that you would not talk freely about, obviously. You would not necessarily write about this, especially while you were engaged in this activity, I mean, because that could have so easily drawn attention to yourself and been self-incriminating. And uh, so that's one reason why I suppose some of the specifics of the Underground Railroad and who was part of it and how it functioned, some of that is shrouded in mystery and always will be. Uh, yes. Uh, and it would, because uh, it was very informal, but a lot of what we do know was from there were communities, uh, especially in the North, that were very heavy, heavy in abolitionist sentiment. Uh, Boston was one of those communities. Hmm. So, Boston in Boston, Harriet Tubman actually went on a public lecture tour, going and saying, "Hey, I freed myself, and I have been freeing other people." But because of slowness and speeds of transport and um, communication, as well as just where people are in Boston, she was relatively safe. Um, Boston was one of the northern cities where if you were uh, enslaved and became a freedom seeker and didn't go all the way to Canada, you might actually just stop in Boston because hmm. there was a large enough abolitionist community. Um, prior to 1850, of course, all you had to do was basically get to a non-slave state and you would have been fine. But with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, that hmm. in essence meant that 
even if you were in a free state, you were still at risk if someone decided to come by and say, hey, that's, that's a person I enslave, uh, bring them back. Um, but in some communities like Boston, uh, you would be much safer than others. You'd be much safer in Boston than in Philadelphia, for instance. Hmm. I uh, would assume that the Underground Railroad pretty much ceased function um, with was it with the with uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, or it would have been a couple of years later with the conclusion of the Civil War? It w- yeah, it would have been ending in the mid eighteen sixties. So the Emancipation Proclamation uh, stated that on January first, eighteen sixty three, if you were enslaved in an area controlled by the Confederacy, you were legally free if you could get to Union lines. But what that excluded was enslaved people in states that remained in the Union and enslaved people in parts of the U.S. that had been recaptured by Union troops, which by late 1862 had been uh, like parts of Tennessee and a few other states as well. Um, So it wasn't an an instant, hey, everyone's free kind of thing. Um, So... Maryland, for instance, is very – it could be said Maryland was very conflicted in terms of its loyalties. It was a slave state. It remained in the Union. It saw some of the first bloodshed against Union troops when uh, angry um, Confederate sympathizing mobs attacked Union troops passing through Baltimore. Um, Lincoln established martial law and suspended habeas corpus. Um, There were a lot of things going on. But Maryland did not abolish slavery until it adopted a new state constitution in late 1864. And that was in part due to pressure from the federal government Hmm. and other groups going and saying, hey, when you make this new constitution, abolish slavery. Hmm. Make it clear. What was the heyday of the Underground Railroad? I mean, what what decades or years was it most active and most significant? So the coin was termed in the early 1830s, um, but it would have been most active in the 1850s. It mm. kind of increased in size and scope. And in the 1850s, it got a little bit more organized, still very informal, but a bit more structured, uh, more people involved in the activities. Very good. Uh I know that you have at least a little bit of acquaintance with the presence of the Underground Railroad here in southeastern Wisconsin. Uh, Dave McGrath, our news director, was mentioning that there is some kind of marker, I'd forgotten this, uh, in Library Park in downtown Kenosha that makes some reference to the Underground Railroad. And there's also quite an interesting story from Racine about the Underground Railroad. What do you want to tell us about how the Underground Railroad functioned uh, in this uh, neck of the woods. Yes, so Wisconsin uh, in the 1850s was a very abolitionist state. There was a state Supreme Court ruling that found the Fugitive Slave Act unconstitutional due to states' rights, actually. Um, Mm. It's a very um, interesting twist given to how that's generally uh, brought up in cases regarding to the Civil War. Um, But Wisconsin was a center of, uh, certainly featured a lot of abolitionist activity. Um, In part, it was a a lot of abolitionists and not a whole lot of enslaved people passing through, um, just because Wisconsin demographically did not have a large black population, did not 
border a state with a large black population. Um, but there are a few notable cases. Um, I don't know the veracity of things in Kenosha. Um, the park I worked at um, was operated in was by operated by the Maryland Park Service and was in partnership with the National Park Service. And it's the headquarters of a National Park Service program called the National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom. Mm. And their website has a full listing of verified sites on the Underground Railroad. And so one day at work, I realized, oh, I wonder if there's anything, anything in Kenosha. And there aren't any recognized sites in Kenosha, but there are a couple in Racine and one in Milwaukee. And that's because a man named Joshua Glover was enslaved in Missouri. And he uh, became a freedom seeker in 1854 and made his way north and eventually settled in Racine. And he was working by the docks there. A couple of years later, 1856, his slaveholder traveled from Missouri, found because he found out where Josh Glover was, traveled to Racine and took a federal marshal with him and then went and said, hey, this man is my property. The federal marshal hit Josh Glover, chained him up, and brought him to the jail in Milwaukee. Um, but Racine was actually a fairly very abolitionist community. And so when this happened, people were outraged. And so the a church bell was rung, that kind of thing, and a large group of people gathered in what is today Monument Square in Racine. Um, and they were like, hey, this is terrible. They've you know, taken a person. We can't let this stand. Um, the county sheriff of Racine actually put out a warrant for the arrest of the slaveholder and the U.S. marshal for kidnapping. Wow. <laughs> and this large, angry mob um, went and actually traveled to Milwaukee. And they found another group of angry people outside the jail in Milwaukee, um, upset about what had happened. And across the road from the jail was a construction site, and there were timbers lying about. And so some people in the crowd grabbed the timbers, broke down the doors of the jail, broke Josh Glover out of jail, brought him to storehouses on the docks in Racine, owned by, I believe, A.P. Dutton. And then a few weeks later, a ship going along the Great Lakes, Great Lakes picked up Josh Glover and brought him to safety in Canada. Hmm. Wow. That's an uncommon story, I should think. Very uh, much so. It's not common that in, in cases with uh, the Underground Railroad that an angry mob uh, is on the side of, side of good. But in this case, it was. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yes, and for the most part, the stories of the Underground Railroad are quiet stories uh, mm -hmm. and of, of work being carried out in, in secret and, and, of course, for very good reason. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today on The Morning Show with Adam Larson, uh, a, a recent graduate from Carthage College and recently a seasonal park ranger with the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad uh, State Park in Maryland, uh, Dorchester County, Maryland, uh, where uh, Harriet Tubman was, was born. Uh, Adam, I uh, am excited to hear what you can tell us uh, about Harriet Tubman, and we've, of course, her name has come up repeatedly uh, in this conversation as we've talked about the Underground Railroad, she being someone who was uh, a, a pivotal figure uh, in the freeing of a number of slaves, and she herself, of course, was a slave who managed to escape to freedom, but didn't, in a sense, luxuriate in her own freedom, but it, 
I'm sure considerable risk, uh, went back to uh, help ensure the rescue of other slaves. Uh, tell us what you think is most important for us to know about uh, Harriet Tubman in terms of what we know early on and how she managed to escape from, from uh, slavery. So Harriet Tubman was born in March of 1822. So the bicentennial of her birth is actually going to be coming up next year. Uh Um, She was born into slavery. Uh, Her mother was enslaved. Her father was enslaved. Her siblings were enslaved. Uh, But her mother and father were enslaved by different slaveholders, Hmm. meaning that her father, in order to visit his family, had to walk about 10 miles just to go and see his wife and children. And he could only do that when he had enough time to walk 10 miles. Um, Growing up, she uh, was first hired out at the age of six, meaning that her slaveholder basically went and said, hey, this anyone want to you know, buy the services of a, a six-year-old to do whatever you need doing? Um, she was hired to a farmer who made a six-year-old girl go and wade through swamps to check muskrat traps in the winter. Hmm. Um, wow. With no protective clothing, hmm. no, not even shoes. Um, and so she's very, you know, very harshly treated um, while growing up. When she was 12 or 13, she took a routine trip to the Bucktown General Store. Uh, and this store is, uh, you can still, you can visit it today. It's near the state park. Hmm. Um, and there, a enslaved man uh, was fleeing from an overseer. An enslaved man came into the store. An overseer came into the store. And the overseer asked Harriet to help him tie up the enslaved man. And Harriet went and said, mm, I, I really don't want to. Uh, so the enslaved man uh, went and ran out the door. The overseer picked up a weight and threw it at the enslaved man. It missed the enslaved man, but hit Harriet Tubman in the head. Uh, mm-hmm. That cracked her skull. It almost killed her. Um, but she um, survived, and that uh, she would afterwards forever talk about how she would experience visions Mm. Um, so her symptoms align with what we would today describe as temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm. And so it leads to very vivid hallucinations, generally of a religious manner. Um, and so, but she believed there were visions uh, sent by God and that she had a personal connection with the divine. And so that actually came in very handy while on the underground railroad because, and while in later in life, because she always believed that God was there watching out for her and that nothing bad would happen to her. Mm. Um, so whatever you think of the, the source of the visions, it gave her such confidence that meant she wasn't second-guessing what she was doing. Um, so that ex- helps explain the courageous things she did. Yes. Uh, because she didn't feel like God was going to allow anything, to, uh, anything bad to happen to her. Uh, even though she was putting herself in incredibly dangerous positions. How did she herself escape from slavery? So in 1849, her slaveholder died. And when a slaveholder died, that would actually be oftentimes a source of uh, great worry for those that he enslaved, Um, which sounds a bit odd, but that's because when a slaveholder dies, they may have debts in their estate that need to be settled. Uh, their will may need to be executed. And in that will or in the settling of debts, the people they enslave may be separated. And so if your slaveholder dies, that means that you might be separated from her family. And sure enough, uh, her slaveholder's widow uh, found herself in a lot of debt with a lot of kids. And so she decided, I'm going to go and sell the, uh, some of the people that my family enslaves. So Harriet Tubman 
decided, you know what, you know, she talked to a couple of her brothers and said, you know, let's go and uh, let's go and try and get our freedom. And so they made an initial attempt, but they got lost. And her brothers went and said, you know what, we're lost. Let's just go back. Let's just cut our losses. We're not going to make it. And Harriet was like, no, let's let's keep going. And they're like, no, no, you're you're coming with us. And so they brought her back. Um, She didn't want to come back, but they brought her back. And then a few weeks later, Harriet decided, you know what, maybe I'm just going to go on my own. Mm. It's, it's, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. So she left one day off the plantation um, uh, in Poplar Neck in Caroline County, which borders Dorchester County. And from there she walked, um, we don't know her exact route, but she would have worked, walked north up the eastern shore of Maryland and then passed into Delaware. And she eventually landed in Philadelphia and she, she's, talked to interviewers about how wonderful it was to be to cross the Mason-Dixon and enter Philadelphia and to be truly free. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Philadelphia, she found work as a like, domestic worker and such. She worked in Philadelphia and Cape May, New Jersey. But while in Philadelphia, she heard through the grapevine, so the, likely in part due to the activities of the sailors I talked about before, um, she heard that her niece and her niece's daughter was going to be sold south. And so at the time, the economic value of enslaved labor was a lot higher in the deep south than the upper south. So if you were a slaveholder in the upper south needing to make a quick buck, you could go and sell a person you enslaved to a slave trader, who would then take that person hundreds of miles away, but you would make a very tidy profit, Mm. as would the slave trader. Yeah. So Harriet Tubman heard that her niece was going to be sold south, and that means that essentially no one in her family would see her niece again. Because they're, you know, remember that, you know, can't read and write. There is not really a long-distance method of communication like that. Um, She had actually seen a few of her sisters get sold south, and she never saw them again in her life at all. Mm. Um, So she realized, you know what, I think I need to do something. So she headed back to Maryland, which is a slave state, um, putting herself at risk and orchestrated an escape. And so that escape of Kasiah, her niece, and Kasiah's daughter is was the first of what would be at least 13 rescue missions on the Underground Railroad, rescuing about 70 friends and family members. Wow. It's just amazing to think about that that kind of legacy and that she would go back again and again and again. And uh, I read in one of the brochures you shared me that uh, Harriet Tubman was very proud of the fact that she never lost a passenger, so to speak. I mean, of of everyone she attempted to rescue from slavery, uh, they all managed in, indeed to to escape slavery. And one just thinks about, I mean, just for instance, Harriet Tubman just making contact with those, I mean, like coming back onto the property, one presumes, of these slave owners. I mean... Yes, it would depend on who she was rescuing. Um, she it, she would, in some cases, try and give, if she was heading back to rescue a specific person, she would try and give that person a heads up. Um, that's a lot trickier said than done, if you don't read or write, and the person you're trying to help can't read or write. Um, So in one case, she went back to Maryland to rescue a few of her brothers. And she realized she had to go and get a message to them. So she could go and tell them, hey, you know, just be ready to leave because I'm coming back. 
So she had a friend of hers that was literate. She dictated a letter to her friend, and her friend mailed that letter to Jacob Jackson. And Jacob Jackson was a free black farmer and veterinarian in Dorchester County, and he was literate. Um, and so he kind of functioned as a person who you could, you could write a letter to, and he could go and read it and then relay that information. So she had the letter mailed to Jacob Jackson. However, Jacob Jackson had been suspected by local authorities of working on the Underground Railroad. So when the letter arrives at the post office, there are some people at the post office that are very suspicious of this mm -hmm. letter. And they decide to open the letter on their own. Um, but uh, Harriet Tubman uh, was aware that that was something that could happen. And so she actually basically dictated her letter in a code. Mm. She went and said the coded line that meant something was when the good old ship of Zion comes along, be ready to step aboard. Um, but that was within a letter that was ostensibly sent by Jacob Jackson's son. Mm. Um, but the people reading at the post office were you know, very confused by the good old ship of Zion phrase. And also that the letter mentioned uh, the son having brothers, which he did mm. not have brothers. Mm. Uh, and so they're like, well, this is... This is strange. And so I was like, what if, what if we ask Jacob Jackson? So they went to, and they hand-delivered this letter to Jacob Jackson. We're like, hey, what's, what's this mean? And he was like, oh, gosh, well, I don't know, this, this is crazy. I don't know. This is somebody's some crazy person. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I'm sorry. I can't help you, but I don't know what this is. And they went, huh, well, that was weird. And then the people from the post office left, and then Jacob Jackson quickly went and contacted Harriet's siblings. Wow. There you go. Um, I believe the house where uh, Mr. Jackson uh, lived is sort of adjacent to the state park. Yeah, so the park is operated by the Maryland Park Service and is operated in partnership with the National Park Service as a National Historical Park of the same name. And part of the National Historical Park is the Jacob Jackson home, home site. Um, so the building isn't there anymore, but it's the spot where the building was. Mm. Um, it's 480 acres, uh, I believe donated by the Nature Conservancy. Uh, and so that is the land in the area owned by the National Park Service. Maryland Park Service owns the land, the state park, and the visitor center on. Mm. Well, once finally the scourge of slavery uh, is, at least for the most part, eradicated from the scene, Harriet Tubman, of course, lives many decades beyond the end of the Civil War and the end of slavery. Uh, what was she busy with uh, in the final decades of her life? Yeah, she was certainly uh, very much kept busy. Um, and she actually did her part to eradicate um, slavery, or at least to help win the Civil War. Um, because during the Civil War, she served as a spy, scout, and nurse in the Union Army. She was actually the first woman in the Civil War to lead an armed raid, uh, the Combe River Raid that resulted in millions of dollars of uh, damage to Confederate property and resulted in the freeing of over 700 enslaved people from plantations in South Carolina. Wow. Um, she was actually personally recruited for the war effort by the governor of Massachusetts, who had heard about her exploits through her talking about hmm. what she'd been doing on the Underground Railroad. And he thought, well, a person who's been keeps going back to the South and going, in essence, behind enemy lines would probably be good for the war effort. Um, would make one heck of a spy. Mm -hmm. And indeed she did. Um, she, was actually in, she was actually fully inducted into the uh, US, U.S. Army Military Corps of Intelligence Hall of Fame. 
Mm. Might have gotten a word or two wow. no, mixed that, up order that there. Sounds right. <laughs> um, so, but after the Civil War, she settled in Auburn, New York. Um, there's actually a partner National Historical Park there um, that preserves her home. Um, and after the Civil War, she got married. Um, they adopted a daughter. Um, she operated several small businesses, but she was also very active in the suffragette movement. And so she worked to get women the right to vote. Um, and so she did not see it in her lifetime, but a few years after she died, um, the women's rights amendment would be uh, ratified. Right. Um, she also worked to um, improve just general civil rights uh, for black members of the community. She actually founded a very early nursing home for uh, elderly and sick uh, black residents of Auburn. Um, she was involved in all sorts of things. She was also a prolific fundraiser for charity causes. Um, she herself never really had much money. Um, she was always kind of scraping by. And that was in part because the money that she had, she would be giving to other causes. Mm. Uh, one of her kind of financial backers once wrote her a letter going and saying, hey, here's some more money. Please spend this on yourself. Mm. Um, and she ignored his advice and just, you know, kept going. He went, all right, I'll send more. Um, but, yeah, she just kept just kept giving and kept making the world a better place. An amazing figure. And, and I'm also amazed that uh, given the life that she lived, that uh, that she died in 1913 at the age of, if my math is correctly, I think that's 91. Yep. <laughs> I mean, uh, when one thinks about that serious injury she suffered uh, as as a youngster and uh, the wear and tear of all of these perilous uh, journeys and missions on, when, on which she went, uh, I mean, the world is, is fortunate that it had Harriet Tubman in it for as long as it did and that she lived to do so much great work uh, as a suffragist and, uh, and in other ways as well. If people want more information about uh, the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park, I assume there's a website they can visit? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the Maryland Department of, Res- uh, Department of Natural Resources website would have more information. Um, if you search for Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park, it should be the first thing that comes up. Um, and then there's also the uh, National Historical Park's website, so Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad National Historical Park. And the state park is part of a driving tour of many sites, and that's the Harriet Tubman Byway. Right. And that's a really long uh, journey, correct? Uh, yes. So it, it has uh, more than 40 sites uh, located across three states, um, some sites on the eastern shore of Maryland, some in Delaware, and some in Philadelphia. And so the generalized route kind of follows um, the route that Harriet Tubman would have taken to get to freedom. Amazing. So uh, we encourage everybody to seek that out and find out more information about this amazing American Harriet Tubman and about the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad uh, State Park. Adam Larson, who was a seasonal park ranger there, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to uh, join us here at WGTD and to uh, uh, tell the amazing story of Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me.